0: All right, Mark chapter 3. Wrapping that up today, we've got, um, in a sense, a gap in our passages. Um, I'll explain that a little bit later. Then they went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And then picking up verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother? And, my brothers. and looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my, bro- my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're uh, mindful of uh, Peter Gray, not Peter, Paul Gray this morning, uh, who's fallen ill, and uh, we pray for you to... Uh, protect him and to heal him, and uh, protect Lucette so that she doesn't get what he has. Uh, Father, be with us now and uh, open our eyes to this text. Uh, help us to see um, who Jesus is and what Jesus offers us, um, because it does matter. Many of us are in shoes similar to these. Uh, we felt the uh, um, the pain uh, that Jesus likely felt in the midst of these events. Um, Help us to have the hope based on the promise of Jesus in the midst of those sorts of things. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, One of the interesting things um, about middle school is that your world expands. Uh, I grew up, you know, having to walk just down the street, not even a quarter of a mile, to the elementary school. And uh, all my friends lived within a reasonable walking distance or my cousin was a mile away, so I had to ride the bike most of the time, except the dead of winter, to go see my cousin and spend time with him. Um, but then you go to middle school, and uh, life sort of expands. And one of the first friends that I remember uh, making was a guy named Brian Borromeo. And we were, ended up being in a lot of classes together and spending a lot of time together. And uh, I, I think I recall in 10th grade, um, this will make sense later, I think, uh, we were in Spanish class, and my teacher had, had said that I didn't have to take the test that day uh, because she, she was at the confirmation service at the Catholic church I grew up in, and she tried to give me a pass on the exam. Well, not a complete pass. I'd have to take it later, and I just said, ah, no, I'll take it now. But Brian and I were in a lot of classes together. And, uh, we had a, a fondness for professional wrestling. And, uh, so we would go up to Manchester occasionally and cheer on the heels. Um, those are the bad guys for those of you who don't know. Um, and oddly enough, when it was time, uh, at our graduation and they had us all line up, we were both in the upper quarter and I was 43 and he was 44. And so, uh, there's probably a lot there that, uh, that we had in common. And, um, He was one of my first Filipino friends, which is kind of funny. I've had this string of Filipino friends. Perhaps I need to pray for another Filipino friend. When we graduated, he was going to St. Anselm's, which is a college uh, in New Hampshire, and that he was going to uh, seek to become a dentist initially, whereas I went off to Boston, that great big city, uh, to study economics. How exciting, isn't it? Um, At some point... Brian decided uh, he didn't want to be a dentist. I'm not sure what uh, prompted that. Um, And he ended up transferring to Northeastern, which is also in Boston. And we got together and talked. And this was after I had become a Christian. And I'm not sure why we met, but it was almost like... I I think we actually met each other on a street corner for some strange reason. Like We happened to pass each other and wait a minute, what are you doing here, kind of thing. And uh, when I shared with him uh, what had happened to me, it was met with a less than positive response. And that conversation ended up being the very last conversation that I had with Brian. Brian. Sometimes uh, the gospel changes relationships in a negative way. And as we look at this text, we have that question, how does the proclamation of the gospel affect some families? And the context here specifically is families. We, We see that Jesus has returned to Capernaum. Uh, he had, as I mentioned last time, he had spent the time up on the mountain. He had chosen the 12 apostles. And now he comes down, and he's back into Capernaum. Um, and the crowds have once again begun to gather all around Jesus. And uh, they've stormed the house, so to speak, and they fill the courtyard. And uh, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're listening to Jesus, but they're so persistent that Mark records that they, referring to Jesus and his disciples, and possibly the crowds as well, could not even eat. Uh, There was so much ministry going on that it was very difficult for them to care for themselves. And um, this is actually one of the the lessons they tell us in seminary and online is self-care for pastors. Well, there wasn't much self-care that was uh, happening here for Jesus and the disciples. And amazingly, um, I almost, for some reason, in my brain go to... um, how the Grinch Saved Christmas, when the Grinch realizes what's gone on and he has the dog and he pulls him down and talks to him. And he goes, you know, I can see this in my head for some strange reason because I'm a strange person. Without phones. Without email. Without the telegraph. Without even the postal service. His family hears of this. Now, that's kind of surprising when you take into mind, uh, take into consideration that Nazareth is a 20-mile journey from Capernaum. And we uh, have a little map here that shows you, uh, you know, when the thing decides to boot up here. There we go. And we have a little map here that shows you um, part of Galilee. And um, we have Nazareth down here, uh, the south side of the Lake of Galilee, but far inland, and you've got to go traverse north, to the northern side of the the Sea of Galilee. That's about 20 miles. Um, Remember, no cars. We could do the Grinchy thingy too. No bicycles. (laughs) Uh, If they had money, they could have a a horse or a donkey, uh, but most likely they were not. And they would have to walk this journey, and it would be a day's journey on foot to Capernaum. And uh, we've got a picture, a little bit of some countryside, so it's not as bad as I tend to think about when I think about the Holy Land having never been there. That's not too bad. It's kind of pretty. But that's still not easy walking. Uh, That's a hard walk for them to take. Um, But that's what it would look like. They hit the road. It says that they went out to seize him or to take custody of him. For they were saying that he is out of his mind. Now, they... We're not sure who the they is. Uh, is it the scribes who are saying Jesus is out of His mind? Is it the crowds who are saying that Jesus is out of His mind? Is it His family that reflects the scribes and the crowds that is saying that He is out of His mind? But they come to take custody because they believe, or some believe, that Jesus is deranged. That in a sense He is possessed by a, a different spirit. Has lost His mind. And for some of you who have uh, family members or ones that you love who struggle with mental illness and sometimes you've had to be the one who who brings them, takes custody of them and brings them to a hospital so they can get the care. I've had to do that with a congregant and it's no fun whatsoever. It's heartbreaking to see what sin can do to a person's mind. And that's the situation here. They're not looking forward to this. This is not, oh, we're going to see Jesus for the holidays. It's we're going to see Jesus because we think something is incredibly wrong with Jesus. His mother, who had previously treasured everything in her heart, perhaps now, 30 years later, is experiencing some second thoughts. We're not really sure. Had she forgotten those things? Had she forgotten to apply those things. Had she thought that they would take a different form, we're not really sure what's going on, but we have these, this, these two passages kind of bookend this section of when Jesus is accused of being possessed by Beelzebub. The section where the scribes have come to examine him. And so perhaps what's going on is that his family is coming before charges can be pressed against Jesus. Jesus did, as it says in John 1, come to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But we also see from this text and others that his own family at this point has not received him. We see in John's Gospel how his brothers sort of taunted and made light of him about whether or not he should go down to one of the festivals and reveal his greatness to other people. Uh, It's very similar to what we see In Genesis 37, which was read for us this morning, as Joseph is honored by God, and yet his brothers are jealous. His brothers are filled with hatred. His brothers are eventually going to want to kill him and send him off into slavery instead. The gospel can temporarily separate Jesus from his earthly family. And it can separate us, hopefully only temporarily, from our earthly families. Jesus warned that persecution was coming. He warned them that they would be cast out of synagogues. He warned them that they would possibly be betrayed by family. We see this in Luke 12, which is a parallel text to what we read earlier in uh, Matthew 10, and what we see as well in Mark 10. But from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, Three against two, and two against three, they will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. While the gospel does come to bring peace because it includes the conflict of the kingdoms, the gospel will inevitably separate those who are in different kingdoms. In Rome, as we've mentioned before, Christianity was, in fact, at that point in time, when Mark's gospel was written and sent there, an illegal religion. Converts there could face dishonor. Converts there could face rejection. This was applicable to them. They would understand this. Because their families, perhaps, their friends, perhaps, like my friend Brian, would see my conversion as a traitorous act. Or perhaps merely that they've gone insane. They were ridiculed, as Peter says oftentimes, because they would no longer participate in the sins of their own culture, their own city, their own families they lost relationships but they would also lose standing and in the middle east in particular honor was an incredible thing and, and and your actions reflected upon your family and for you to bring dishonor to a family is a profound thing we see this even now within muslim cultures with you know we've heard of Honor killings. What's that all about? Someone has disgraced the family, and the way that that family regains face is by killing the one who brought the dishonor to the family. And that's not just in terms of um, something happen happening in you know women who are raped sometimes are twistedly seen as the one who is wrong. But it's also about when when Muslims convert to Christianity, they bring dishonor to their family and they can be subject to death from their family. Elliot Clark, in his excellent book, which I highly recommend, Evangelism as Exiles, talks about this fear of rejection, this fear of ostracization as one of the things that stifles the proclamation of the gospel, particularly in Western countries. We're afraid of losing our place. We're afraid of losing our influence. We're afraid of losing our power. uh, and, And therefore, we shut up about the gospel. I know what it's like to lose friendships. As I mentioned, when Brian heard what had happened to me, and um, he saw it as a traitorous act, that I had turned my back on him, not just his faith. And I'll never be able to have a conversation with Brian because I found that Brian had a heart attack and died about five or six years ago. Sometimes that happens when we're faithful to the gospel. Jesus knows this rejection firsthand. That's what I want you to hear. Jesus knows this rejection firsthand, and Jesus can comfort his people. He can comfort those whose hearts are rocked by such a loss. He knows how to comfort those who lose friendships. He knows how to comfort those who've lost family relationships. He's able to speak to them because he knows what it's like. He's walked in those shoes. And so, in response to, or the answer to that first question, how does the proclamation of the gospel affect some families? The answer is that the gospel separates some physical families. We have to be honest about that. Leads us to sort of a second question. What does the gospel promise those who have been rejected by family and friends? In other words, Put it another way, how does Jesus comfort those who have been rocked by such a loss or potentially could be rocked by such a loss? We see that the family in question here is specified as his mother and his brothers. It's interesting that John Calvin still wasn't reformed enough in his thinking about this because he thinks that it's his cousin's. Okay, he still had this idea of, of Mary as the virgin perpetually, and I don't think that really bears up the weight. It's not that Mary went and got the cousins and is coming to claim Jesus. I really believe it's his brothers. We see in Mark 6, when the, the, the Nazareth becomes scandalized by the teaching of Jesus, they say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That seems very unlikely to mean cousins. That word can refer to extended family, brother Israelites. It can mean that, but it doesn't really seem to me that since they're naming them. Which, of course, if we um, take them out of the Greek, it's Jacob, Joseph, Judah, Simeon. Sounds familiar doesn't it? Tribes of Judah and his sisters. So we have Mary and her sons traveling up to Capernaum. They can't get into the house. Uh, They've somehow located the house. I'm, I'm not sure how that actually functions. It's not like today. We, you know, there's no GPS. There's no um, phone app to kind of get you to your location. There's probably no you know, street address as we commonly would understand it. Maybe they just followed the crowds. This must be where Jesus is. And they, it's so crowded they can't get in. And so what we have is them stuck outside. And they're, they're calling in, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus and they're trying to send messages in uh, to, through people to let Jesus know uh, that he, they are out there. Okay? Uh, we're not sure if Jesus knows why they're out there or if they communicated why they're out there. Obviously, we know from what's going to happen later in the story <laughs> uh, that the brothers of, of Jesus would tell Mark why they were out there or Mary did could be either of them but at this point they're out there calling they're seeking for Jesus to come out to them jesus asks this question who are my mother and my brothers implying that the people outside who are his mother and brothers are not his mother and brothers Or at least not the mother and brothers that matter in this moment. The issue is not Jesus so much as their failure to honor Jesus as the herald and to honor the message that he as the herald brings. They're not currently in alignment with Jesus. And so Jesus says, Here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus identifies the people who are with him as family. And those who were out there who were his physical family to not be family. Because these people who were in here had received the message of the kingdom by faith and they hadn't yet. Elsewhere in this gospel, we see that Jesus promises that those who lose family for the gospel will receive them back or receive a new family in place. We see that in Mark 10. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Okay. Jesus offers this. This promise that while they might lose some family, while they might lose some possessions, Jesus will supply what they need more than what they need. For instance, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes to them, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Once they were foreigners and now they are family. And Paul needed to remind them of this great gospel promise that has been given to them, this gospel reality that they are intended to experience. And so we see that Jesus does refresh souls that have been wearied by loss, souls that have been wearied by betrayal, by placing them in a new family, and not just any family, His family. And so while believing the gospel can be costly at times, it is even more rewarding long-term. Because in Mark 10, Jesus doesn't stop with the persecutions. He says, and in the age to come, eternal life. He's reminding them that there is great benefit in believing. And it's not just in this life, but it's even more predominantly in the life to come. And so family. Family is a funny thing. My family is a funny thing. Um, well, my family of origin, I was semi-surprised that they didn't reject me when I became a Christian, uh, and yet when I think of the fact that they were nominally Christian, at be- uh, Catholic at best, oh well, it really didn't seem to matter a whole lot. My parents were always more consumed with whether or not I was happy uh, than whether or not I was an agreement with them, so to speak. My family, which, uh, you know, we've got a whole bunch of adopted kids. People who are bound by affection and commitment to one another, not necessarily simply blood to one another. Family is about affection. Family is about commitment. Family is about delight in a group of people, but it's also about discipline. As we read in places like uh, Hebrews chapter 12, the you know, Father treats you as sons, so therefore consider all hardship as discipline. Families experience discipline or practice discipline. Families experience provision as well as protection. And so when Jesus talks about receiving this new family, he's talking about all of these things. for the benefit of those who've lost family and friend because of their faith. Now, let's answer sort of a question that um, is on some of your minds, maybe not all of you, maybe not even any of you, I guess, but um, they're going on a rabbit trail, in other words, or as the, the intelligent people like to say, I use that term loosely, excursus. (laughs) excursus. <laughs> That's a fancy word for rabbit trail. Does this negate the you and your seed principle that we find in the Old Testament? Okay. Uh, you know, that we see with the, the covenant with Abraham. This is for you and your seed. We see it re- repeated in the Mosaic covenant, and oddly enough, we also find it in some of the promises of the new covenant. Okay? In the prophets you and your seed. Is, is this to be understood as sort of undoing that as some people seem to think? Uh, to which I would say, mm, no. <laughs> it does not undo this principle at all. It recognizes that it's, it's not an absolute principle in, su- in the sense that every single um, child of Abraham's was going to come to faith. We know right off the bat, Ishmael was not we know uh, pretty quickly that Esau, son of Jacob, was not. That the child of promise was actually going to be Jacob. And we see that borne out. In fact, Paul talks about that. Not all of Israel is Israel. It's not simply by uh, this blood tie, but that blood tie still is part of one, one way that God does work. In fact, we see... Uh, that Mary is going to be restored. She's going to come to faith. We see that the very least, uh, James, is going to come to faith. Uh, We see uh, in Acts chapter 1, we're looking at this for BSF with my kids, and in Acts chapter 1 it talks about how Mary and Jesus' brothers were with the disciples. And so at some point, some of them, we don't know if it's all of them, but at least two, came to faith. Upholding that principle that God works multi-generationally. Okay? We see that one of these was even one of the apostles. In Galatians 1, Paul is talking about his time in Jerusalem. and he, he had already mentioned that he went to see Peter or Cephas. he says, but I saw none other of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. He had risen to such prominence, not because he was a blood relative of Jesus, but because he had displayed himself to be a wise and godly man. While they resisted Jesus and his message, their sin could and would be forgiven. If we think back to the text last week, you can say all kinds of blasphemies against Jesus, but don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They had criticized Jesus. Uh, they had teased Jesus, much like the Joseph's brothers back in Genesis 37. But they hadn't blasphemed the Holy Spirit like the scribes had, and so they could receive forgiveness for their sins. And in fact, they did. And so time may reveal that your lost loved ones repent and believe in Christ. I take uh, great confidence or hope from the the story of Christopher Yuan. Some of you are familiar with it from the book, um, um, Out of a Far Country. Uh, He was Chinese, a Chinese-American. Honor culture. And when he came out of the closet, he was rejected by his family because he had brought dishonor to his family. And then mom and dad became Christians. And something funny happened. The Christians began to love their gay son. And you wouldn't think, as as you read this story, um, he keeps rejecting and rejecting the the good news of Jesus Christ, and he gets further and further into um, a lifestyle of sex and drugs, and he becomes a drug dealer and he ends up in prison. And it's in prison that out of boredom he takes a Bible out of the trash. And it is out of boredom that he begins to read this Bible. And suddenly all the things his mom has been saying to him as she loved him from afar begin to make sense as God opens his eyes through his word. And Christopher go on comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is reunited to his family spiritually, not just physically. These things do happen. God magnifies his grace in stories like that. I'm amazed. Sometimes I wonder, and as, as I've shared with some of you about my own family, I'm the only, I'm it. And to find out that uh, one of my friends who's a minister in the ARP has begun to date this woman who has a long distance relationship and she lives in New Hampshire. And, huh, she lives in Milford, which is really close to where my brother lives. But you know where she works? She works at the assisted living home where my mother is. And she talks to my dad all the time. And when my dad tried to set her up with my brother, she used that as an opportunity to share the gospel with him and why she can't date my brother. And so my dad is hearing the gospel. And so perhaps um, that story will have a different ending than what I often fear it will have. And so Jesus gives those who believe a new family. And sometimes that new family includes some of the old family. We'll toss that in for good measure. But what is the distinguishing mark of this new family? Jesus further identifies this family, uh, you know, the people who are here. It's not just their physical proximity to Jesus that matters, but he says that whoever does the will of God. And the first and obvious part of the will of God is that we would believe in Him and the one that He has sent and receive salvation. And so the will of God is that people turn away from their sin and they return by faith in Jesus Christ to God the Father. And so Jesus is talking about these people not simply as people who have decided to hang out with Jesus, but they are people who have turned from sin and believed in Him and His message. The people who do believe in this way have Jesus' righteousness or obedience imputed to them, placed into their account so that God declares them to be righteous just as if they had been obedient. Because He sees the obedience of of His eternal Son as Messiah when He sees them. We call that justification. But we see in places like Ephesians 1 that it talks about election, and it talks about holiness, it talks about even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Not because we were holy and blameless before Him, but so that the election and the salvation come before the holiness and blamelessness. They are not the cause of the salvation. They are not the cause of the election. They're saved, in other words, or we've been saved To be holy, not saved because we are holy. Because we've been justified, we now grow in obedience and become holy. And so holiness is that defining factor of this family, but it's a defining factor that comes after they become part of the family. It's not the reason they become part of the family. They become holy and blameless. We see this uh, similarly in 1 Peter chapter 1 to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay? Elect exiles. They've been chosen by God, but they don't fit in the, the kingdom of man or the domain of, of darkness. They're now part of the, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Okay, so they're, they're exiles. Okay, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so, not only did Paul teach this, but we see Peter teaching this. They've been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ, not because of their prior obedience to Jesus Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, says in the first chapter of his letter, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, thereby deceiving yourselves. And so, as people who have experienced salvation, we become holy. Jesus is talking about the fact that his family recognizes his authority, and begins to obey him. The nature of discipleship itself is to forsake our autonomy, our self-rule, to come under the rule of Jesus because he is king, because he is Messiah, because he is the eternal son. And we can't separate salvation from that because it's one of the things that salvation is intended to produce. So this question should be coming to us. Whose will do we obey? Are we going along with our peers just to kind of fit in? Whatever they want to do, we will do too? Do we simply do things because we've been told by our parents that's what we must do? Do we do what we want to do because we are autonomous? We are the captains of our own soul. <sighs> or do what we do is because we're learning, we're learning to be in, live in submission to Jesus Christ? And even if our peers don't like it, even if our parents don't like it, and sometimes even if we don't like it, there are plenty of commands Jesus gives that if I could wipe them out of Scripture, I probably would. As a sinner, not as a godly person. Because, man, that impinges upon my rights. Man, that impinges upon what I want to do But that's the whole point of discipleship. It's not about what I want to do, but it's about picking up my cross daily and following after Jesus. And that's what he's getting at. This family follows him. Not culture, not bloodlines, not peers, but Jesus. And sanctification is Jesus imparts His righteousness to us so that we become personally holy, personally obedient. Now what's interesting in all of this, and I want to get back to, is that okay? these people that are sitting with Jesus in this house of Peters and Andrews, these are the people that the Pharisees are looking down upon. These are the drunkards. These are the prostitutes. These are the lowly fishermen. This is the traitorous tax collector. These are unholy people in the eyes of the Pharisees. They're big sinners. But Jesus has changed them into big saints. They've left their traitorous ways. They've left their, their sinful ways. and Jesus changes big sinners into big saints. And we have to remember that. Jesus loves you even though you might be a mess, but Jesus doesn't leave you as a mess. He changes you. He transforms you. And not in just anything, but we see from Romans 8.29 that we are conformed to the likeness of Jesus, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. He makes us like himself. That's what he's doing. But again, he's doing it. How does holiness happen? I think if we could just sum it up in a couple of moments, because that's all I've got right now, is that holiness happens as we listen. As we believe what he says is true. As we therefore pray for grace and begin to act. Holiness is not accidental, but holiness begins with faith, listening in faith. Recognizing you're not up to the task and asking for grace, but then trying to walk in the way that He has just shown you instead of going your own way because you think it's easier. And so Jesus makes the new family holy. So the big idea of all of this, if we take these three threads and we weave them together as they should be woven together, the Gospel forms a new holy family for Jesus. Here in this text, we see a glimpse of how Jesus views conversion as the gospel transforms relationships. It disrupts relationships that are dominated by the realm of darkness. Some relationships are broken, and some of those are never restored. Like my relationship with my high school friend, Brian. But others are restored. At least... Some of Jesus' family repented and believed in the kingdom of His own Son. But restored or not, we enter into a new family, a family that's marked by holiness. And so faith in Jesus not only transforms our relationships, but also transforms us in relationship. Fear not. Those relationships that you fear losing... That honor and standing that perhaps you fear losing professionally or personally can be replaced in this life and in the life to come. And so trust in the promise of Jesus more than the fears of your flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that's here because there's also hard news here. None of us, well, unless there's something really wrong with us, but none of us likes to be rejected. None of us likes to be turned away. None of us likes to be ostracized. And faith sometimes results in that. And so sometimes we struggle to come out and declare our faith in Jesus. We. We struggle with proclaiming the good news that He reigns. Father, help us to overcome this, to to cross the pain line by faith, by faith in these great promises that You've given us. Help us to combat our fear with faith. Help us to expose the lies of the evil one with the truth of the promises that you've given us in Jesus, so that we become increasingly faithful disciples, as intended. I pray for us in this congregation that you continue to make us a holy family, and all that it entails, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.